Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup, and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25, in natural mint. Here's to the winning combination for 2022, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB while supplies last. You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. It's off the stick of Bergeron out of the zone. They set him ahead on a breakaway shorthanded. Save Copley. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the LA Kings. A save wins the game for the Kings. Save Copley. Kings win. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I'm Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Your LA Kings have won back-to-back games for the first time in over a month, and as Trevor Moore said to me immediately following that win against San Jose, it does not matter how you win them. On Monday morning, December 19th, your LA Kings will have woken up in second place in the Pacific Division, and while Seattle has fewer games played and a better points percentage, second place is still second place. Today, Dan Greenspan joins me to crown a King of the Week. Then another former King stops by. This time, it's Jason Padolin. All right, it's time to crown a King of the Week. Joining me this week, Dan Greenspan. How are you doing today, Dan? Doing fine. Uh, an interesting week for the Kings, to say the least. It is, yeah. Before we get into that, though, um, you wear many hats, Dan. Which hat are we using this for this episode? Uh, let's say this is my Associated Press hat. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, all right, so we'll get into Dan Greenspan in a second, but we're going to leap into the the previous week uh, of LA Kings hockey. It's the last three games, starting with the 6 to nothing loss to the Buffalo Sabres, the 3-2 to win over the Boston Bruins by way of a shootout, and the 3-2 to win over the San Jose Sharks. We're recording this Sunday, December 18th, so that win was uh, Saturday, December 17th last night. Um, back-to-back three to two shootout victories over Boston and San Jose, a six nothing loss to the Buffalo Sabers. Dan, who is your honorable mention this week for King of the Week? Well, I'm feeling sentimental, so as we get to the holiday season, so I will give it to Mr. Victor Arvidsson, All who right. of course missed the last two games of the road sure. trip and was spared the uh, debacle in Buffalo in that third period. Uh, congratulations to him and his family on the birth of their. Second child, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and go with Kevin Fiala. Uh, two points and a plus one, and just continues to be an offensive dynamo, which is, I suppose, why they got him. And, uh, you know, he. I didn't think we don't have to spend too much time on this, Dan, but I didn't think that the penalty he got late last night in the game against the Sharks should have been a penalty. Uh, the hooking call on him. Um, I'm concerned that he may be getting reputation penalties at this point because uh, I'm not sure that every time he gets one, it's actually his fault. Yeah, I I, I was down in, in the uh, press room at whatever we're calling the building these days. It's crypto.com Arena. <laughs> Downtown LA, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I had to do a double take. Like It's one of those things where even when the replay, it, it looked pretty iffy. So yeah. that is that 
I hadn't thought about the reputation thing. That would be a bit of an issue if if that becomes a bit of a trend here. Mm-hmm. All right. So then your runner up this week. I would go with the newly rich man from uh, the Westlake Village adjacent town of Thousand Oaks, Trevor Moore, the two key shootout goals and obviously the big new contract that will keep him a king for a nice little while here. Well, in that case, I'm, I think we may have the same king of the week because my runner up is going to be Adrian Kempe with two goals, getting, uh, breaking that slump, uh, coming through and sort of seeming to refine his game a little bit. Um, so then Dan, who is your king of the week? Mr. Copley, the, uh, goaltender de jour for the Los mm-hmm. Angeles Kings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my pick as well. Um, Got lit up in that 6 nothing game against Buffalo, but through two periods, performed quite well, I felt. Yeah, that was... You, you don't want to ever say professional athletes quit or gave up, but there were some of those vibes as that yes. third period in <laughs> Buffalo went along. Yeah, the rule of thumb I try to follow is if the people in the organization are using language like that, then I'll feel comfortable using language like that, and I... That seems to be the consensus, is that after that first goal in that Buffalo game, they sort of threw in the towel in that third period. And, you know, I don't recall who I was speaking to that pointed it out, but the goal differential on the Kings for the season is um, a concern for me. I use goal differential as a sort of quick, you know, indication, a barometer of, of where the team is. They're a minus 10. But somebody pointed out to me that they lost five to nothing to Toronto and they lost six to nothing to Buffalo. And that's that would be a minus eleven. If they're only a minus ten, that means they're a plus one if you remove those blowouts. And so yeah. that made me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, it's funny you point that out, because I was just thinking about that. You know, you go back to last year, the, I think the Kings were the only negative differential team to make the postseason. I think they were a plus three at the end of the year. Okay. But, but it was close. It was very close. They, they were yeah. flirting with it for a while. They were, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is a team, they tend to win close games. They rarely, if ever, blow out opponents. And they have the unfortunate tendency to be on the wrong end of some blowouts. So, you know, but uh, you look at Copley, he's allowed two goals in each of the four wins that he's picked up for the Kings. And, you know, it's trite, but... You know, you should be able to score three goals most of the time in this league if you can hold your opponent to two, especially this Kings team with the the offensive firepower that they've shown this season. They'll be in pretty good shape most nights. Yeah, yeah, it is a three to two league still, or maybe a four to three. But certainly, yes, if you can hold your opponent to two goals, you should win. So congratulations to Phoenix Copley, this week's King of the Week. So, Dan, I mentioned you wear many hats in the press box. Um, For those who want to follow you and and follow your your work following the various teams that you follow, how can can fans do that? Well, for the Associated Press, uh, APnews.com, you'll find us in all sorts of outlets, uh, including one prominent Los Angeles newspaper (laughs) that does not have a King's beat writer and tends to use our game stories a lot of the time. And then I also cover uh, hockey in Los Angeles for NHL.com. So, you know, that's Kings games, that's 
when visiting teams come and practice, if there's news, whatever's going on in LA, I'm I'm the man out here. Now, I hope I'm not um, telling tales out of school, but from time to time in the post-game press conferences with Todd McClellan, I will see you coming in through the door about halfway through the availability with Todd McClellan. Is that because you're in the locker room for the visitor getting quotes from their side? Yes, although some nights, like last night, if you're juggling, you know, if it's when when things get crazy late on, and especially a game like that where it goes to a shootout, you know, you're you're juggling stories. You're you're trying to put everything together, and you know, on a night where you're double dipping for both the AP and NHL.com, uh, that's a lot of work to to knock out in a very short amount of time. So I'm about to insult your profession here, and I apologize in advance. Um, as a fan, and then as a fan who slowly began working his way into you know the industry from a professional standpoint, I would always sort of roll my eyes at the argument that sports writers needed to maintain objectivity. My attitude was always like, uh, you know, if Helene Elliott wants to root openly for the Kings, not that she would, she very clearly would not. But theoretically, if she did, my take on it was always, where's the harm? You know, how is the how is this the coverage of the local team hurt by the coverer, you know, being openly and and passionately in favor of the team? But you now I mean, you're at the practices, you're at the games. I see you all the time, but I've never gotten the impression that you are emotionally tied to the Kings. I'm assuming you're not from Southern California. Maybe you are. I don't actually know. I am actually, you know, I. I was born in 82. Mm-hmm. So when Wayne Gretzky came, like that was the perfect time. And the fact that the Kings always, you know, started the year in October, right around my birthday, you know, that opening night at, at uh, the fabulous forum was a, a big deal for me. Although having done this for a long time, I've sort of graduated as a formal rooting interest, but you know, I, I, if the team does well, that benefits me in the pocketbook. So no complaints. All my friends are Kings fans. Uh, it's it's nice to be around you and then the rest of the group as long as possible. So long playoff runs are not something I would not be amenable to this season. But if you're asking, what's my priority? Best game times. Like <laughs> I loved when we were had those seven o'clock. Uh-huh games for the COVID season. Sure. Like when the Clippers move out, if we can get more 1 p.m. matinees, I would be all for that. And then the other thing is not having to frantically scrap stories on deadline and have to rearrange them on the fly. So drama drama's fun, but in limited doses. You do an excellent job of hiding your uh, your local roots then because I had no idea that you grew up a Kings fan or, or had Kings fan friends or family. Um, I suppose I should probably do it. Well, I, what do I care? I work for the team. I should, <laughs> I should lean into rooting for it. But then in, in that case with a, with that background and your, you know, professional eye, um, what's your take on the season to date? Uh, it's funny. David Quinn, the San Jose coach pointed out that the Kings basically have the same record through 33 games that they had it a year ago. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, the perception is the Kings are disappointing. I, I, the fact that they've been inconsistent is a little troubling. The, the fact that we haven't seen them, 
you know, you get these wild fluctuations in play is it's a bit of an alarm, but on the whole, you know, the uptick in offense is is very nice to see. Uh, Fiala has obviously been a huge addition. Uh, the goal scoring prowess of uh, Gabe Blardy, the the fact that we've seen a lot of different contributors in that bottom six, you know, with some guys jumping in and out. Rasmus Kupari's done well. Uh, Jared Anderson Dolan coming off a, another very nice game against San Jose. He seems to torment them. Uh, obviously, you'd like to see a little more defense, a little more consistency in the goaltending. But I think this team is right about where I thought they would be in terms of record. Uh, again, in terms of performance, not as stable and consistent as you'd like. But, you know, they're, I, I expected this team to be a playoff team. And so far, they've done nothing to uh, dissuade me from that opinion. You mentioned Gabriel Velarde, and it's a funny conversation. Somebody, I don't remember where I heard it. It might have been on a different podcast, or maybe I was talking to my dad. But it was pointed out that like Gabriel Velarde leads the team in goals, but hasn't scored a goal in the month of December. And so the thrust of that conversation was, what a bad sign that nobody else has been able to pass him, you know, to overtake him in the team lead for goals. And yet, they're scoring tons of goals. So even though one person hasn't taken that mantle for themselves, I'm I haven't gone back and done the research, but I'm assuming at this point in the season they have far more goals spread out amongst other players, right? Like even though Adrian Kempe isn't on pace for 40 and Gabriel Velarde's no longer on pace for 55 or whatever it was that Tom McClellan <laughs> said last night. They have tons of guys who have five, six, seven, eight goals, or not tons, but you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's a nice distribution and even mm-hmm. You know, Carl Grundstrom's got six. Right. Uh, Lazat's got six. Those are the kind of guys where, you know, that was the black hole for years and years. You, you knew what you'd get from the Kopitar line. And then, you know, last year we obviously saw the uh, Deneau, uh mm-hmm. more Arvidsson line come along. But, you know, there were nights where you were entirely relying on, on the top six to get goals. The fact that you're seeing some nice production throughout the lineup is is a very nice sign. Yeah, and Kempe is right behind Velarde, to be fair, with his two goals this week. Um, the real question I think it comes down to, and Phoenix Copley might be, might be lending an answer to this question, is at some point, was it really just a question of unstable goaltending, right? Was it as simple as bad goaltending sunk them in a couple of games? Because at this point, if they had, I don't know, three more wins four more wins if that Seattle game, the Minnesota game, those are two I can think of right off the top of my mm-hmm. head. Yeah. You know, the 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 wacky out of control back and forth massive goal scoring games. I know that. If three of those results spin the other way and the Kings have five or six more points in the standings, we're not talking, you know, maybe the conversation the, the inconsistency conversation isn't troubling, it's just quirky. Yeah. Because the team is competing for first in the in the Pacific, it's it's difficult for me as an emotional fan to remind myself of of that fact, and that as Todd keeps saying, the season is eighty two games for a reason. Oh, absolutely. And then the other, you know, the fact that the Kings have played so many games, right? So many games more relative even to the rest of the division, kind of skews things a little. But yeah, I mean, look, there's always the dilemma. You know, I'm about to cover the. Titans Chargers uh, NFL game. NFL is the smallest NFL in college football, 
small a sample size. Mm-hmm. You know, weird things happen over the course of a longer, you know, the the eighty two game NHL season, one hundred sixty two game baseball season. You know, those things get sorted out. But when you're looking at the aggregate in those little small bits, you know, uh, a bad game or two really throws things out. And like you said, you know, you pick up a couple wins, uh, you know, maybe maybe Cal doesn't get put on waivers and have to get sent down to the AHL to find his game. So, you know, it's 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 one of those things. It's the inherent dilemma of the sports fan is small sample size, big picture. How do you balance those two? And, you know, it's hard not, you know, if you have a game where you give up eight goals or nine goals and you, you play terribly, it's, it's hard not to overreact. And the, one of the things I find fascinating is you'll have two people arguing a point and it's, the argument is presented as an either or situation. And of course it almost never is. So for example, the fact that the Kings have played more games than anyone else Somebody inclined to, you know, criticize the Kings position will say, well, they're only 574 points percentage and, you know, Calgary has three fewer games played than them. And if Calgary wins all those games, right, if they get their six points, they're one point behind the Kings. But of course, Calgary has to win those three games. And Calgary's points percentage is closer to 500. (laughs) The game in hand is never a given. Right. Especially Uh, if it's a worse game. Any soccer fan, they'll tell you that. Any sport. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you're dead on. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dan, I appreciate you joining me. Uh, I'm going to let you get back to uh, preparing for that NFL game because, as you said, uh, the pocketbook <laughs> determines the rooting interest. <laughs> but thank you, as always, for joining me, Dan, and we'll talk to you soon. Pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. Hey there, Kings fans. It's less than a week till Christmas. Don't think if it comes and goes before I find the owner of this jersey that I'm going to let it go. This is my thing now, you guys. So get on board. Help me find the owner of this purple Kings jersey. I'll give you another detail of the story. In 2002, the original owner of this jersey traded it at a Kings game. I just need to know, what did they get in that trade? Where and when did the trade occur? How did they get the jersey in the first place? Whoever can fill in those details can claim the jersey. I'm going to find the fan that this jersey belongs to. I'd like to do it in time for Christmas, but if I can't, well, I guess it'll become my New Year's resolution. Joining me now, former King, founder of Up My Hockey and mental performance coach, Jason Padolin. How are you doing today, Jason? Doing great, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Now, if you're curious at all to follow up on any of the things Jason and I talk about here, you can find his work at upmyhockey.com. It is also a podcast. Jason is the host. I've listened to a handful of episodes. I was very entertained, Jason. So let's get straight into uh, your journey because there's a, I don't even know how you define him, but there's a guy named Jack Han. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but no, I'm he's, not actually. He was an assistant coach with the Marlies, and now he's sort of like a freelance writer slash hockey consultant. I think I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to sell Jack short, but he has this article um, on his Substack called "How to Ruin a Player," 
<laughs> and it's pretty quick. And I'm just going to run the bullet points by you. And I'd like you to weigh in if you if you don't mind. Love it. So he says, this is what smart teams do. One, they leverage a player's signature, signature skills. Two, they expand a player's comfort zone by uncovering underutilized assets. Three, they use the develop, developmental momentum to address a player's high-frequency weaknesses. Four, they aggressively ignore a player's low-frequency weaknesses and chalk it up as a cost of doing business with that uniquely talented player. And he says what dumb teams do is they fixate on weaknesses at the expense of leveraging strengths. They spend valuable time and energy attempting to influence low-frequency, low-value skills. They double down on poor process by accusing the player of being uncooperative, and they strip down the player's unique identity, then sell him or her at a discount. Does that sound, <laughs> even if it's a little oversimplified, like an accurate uh, assessment of how the uh, hockey ecosystem works? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was actually a lot. That was, yeah, that sorry was about that. That was a ton of info to toss yeah, at you. Yeah. Um, but I mean, very interesting, right? And and probably really well written, and almost too well written for me to even comprehend <laughs> it all there in that in that uh, sample size. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, what the one the one word I didn't hear was the communication aspect, and I think communication has gotten so much better in the game today that players know what they're expected, like what's expected of them, and what they're supposed to do. Um, and it's quite clear. Uh, and and even knowing what a coach or a manager or a GM or whatever thinks is your strength and weakness is profound in today's world, right? Because back back in the day, like that was a very rare commodity, the communication, you know, and some some teams did have it, but vast majority of teams didn't. And uh, and that's where this crazy word called mental toughness came in, because you were supposed to be able to figure out what that was. Right. And either you did or you didn't. And it was kind of on the player, whether they whether they were able to be mentally tough enough to know what the the, uh, the decision makers really wanted. Right. Sometimes you can make these assumptions, but oftentimes you're wrong in them. So anyways, he was kind of saying that I think that's I mean, even even the bad teams, what he's talking about, the bad teams, it sounds like there's there's a bit of communication happening there, at least, which I think is uh, is better for for a player than not. But. Uh, yeah, I mean the game's changed. I mean the game's changed a ton, um, and I think the players in today's world are, are much better for it. So you were drafted 31st overall in 1994 by the Florida Panthers. You wind up being traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and then ultimately to the LA Kings, which is how you get on my radar. Um, I remember you incidentally very well uh, from your time from your time with the Kings. Um, did you? suffer from that problem of you know the the communication infrastructure not having been built yet in the hockey world well first and foremost like i i want to point out i mean if i'm being wherever this conversation goes and if i talk about you know my strengths and weaknesses of anything like i do mm -hmm. not take I take personal account accountability for all of it. Sure. And that's one thing that I definitely teach my players that I work with now and my teams is like, you need to own your own situation and your own journey, right? This is on you and the controllables that you can control matter. Uh, but you I mean, I can take a step back from that and say, there are some things that are not in your control that are kind of hard to deal with, you know, and, and that you don't know. So in my, in my own situation, um, lack of, yeah, I mean, there was, Technically, when I got traded to the Kings, for instance, um, as far as where that was on my the, the linear sort of journey that I was on, uh, I was having a career year that year. Uh, I was 
20. I started the season at 22. I got traded with 42 goals in the AHL, which was top in the AHL at the time. So I was the leading goal scorer in all of minor hockey, um, or I shouldn't say minor hockey, the minors, right, in, in all of minor league hockey. And uh, and then got traded to the Kings and had five goals in eight games in the IHL. So I had a 47-goal season that year. Um, got called up at the end of the year. Uh, we can maybe get into that call because I didn't even understand the business side of the game as much. I really learned a lot about the business side getting traded to, to the Kings. But I, I ended up getting called up at the end of the year for the last six games. Uh, had an opportunity definitely with, uh, you know, on a, on a line that I would assume that they would maybe see me on, like, or in a position, like a top six position. I was playing with Stumple and Robitaille, I remember, a, a couple games. Um, didn't produce, like, I didn't personally produce. The team was obviously out of the playoffs. I mean, there was a different sort of culture dynamic at that point of the year, I think, for all the veteran guys that were there. So as important as it was to me, it wasn't as imp- really as important to them, you know, from from where it was. But I never had one meeting with anybody when I got traded there, just for instance, right? I never I never talked to Dave Taylor. I never talked to a scout. I never talked to anybody about what they wanted from me, what they thought I should be, what I could be for them. And... uh and yeah, I mean, and that culminated essentially in the last game of the season. We were playing St. Louis in in LA, and it was a mean nothing game for both teams. I I wasn't dumb enough to not recognize it wasn't a mean nothing game for me. But it's really hard to be the one hundred and fifteen percent guy when everyone else is kind of just going through the motions. And um, although I thought I was being competitive that game, like Larry Robinson just tore me a new a new one um, after one shift because he thought I was obviously being too passive or something so the next shift of course i go out and i start running around and hitting people which really wasn't who i was anyways but i could do it and i ended up getting in a fight with jamal myers right get a major and you know and end up end up ending the season with with a fight and trying to play more spirited but like that was kind of you know that was the ecosystem right you know like they waited for you to do something wrong before they told you something and then you try and do you try and correct that and, and be the best soldier you can be for them but yeah i mean there was not one one ounce of discussion about who i was for them what they wanted from me or or what i was supposed to do for them so i mean that kind of tells you a little bit about what's going on so you were um is i think the phrase we used at the top was uh, a mental performance coach and the older i get the more i discover that communication is I don't know, like 99.9% of how we accomplish things in the world. Um, and we have these little mantras on all the King's men. And one of them is the happiness is measured by expectations and expectations and be heavily influenced by communication. So in your role as a, a mental performance coach, how much work do you spend? You know, you said you take personal accountability for your career and all the things that happened in it. But in a in a world now where there's 32 teams in the league and there are, you know, multiple options for players, they can go play in Europe, they can go play in the KHL. Some teams are are better run than others. That's just, you know, I'm not going to try and shine a spotlight on which ones are better or worse. There's just you have 32, right? Like some of them are going to be tip top and others are going to not are going to be not. So how do you what's the first lesson to someone that comes to work with you on how to keep those expectations in check while also assisting them in their own ability to communicate. It's a big question. I apologize. Oh, no worries. So, but you mean, so me working with a, with a, with a client or with, yeah, a, if I come a, to you and I say, you know, Jason, I was a seventh round draft pick and I want to figure out how to maximize my ability to have a career in the NHL. 
Yeah, great question. You know, I think the communication is king, by the way, right? So like the clarity is is really important because the more the more fuzzy and murky we make it, the more gray everything is, like the harder it is to execute on something. So the one thing I do with players is it for me, it's all about empowering them to find what, what their own secret sauce is. I call it their personal operating system, right? And I think that's definitely where the bandwidth of the game has gone. I think the game now allows more personalities into the game right? Like the funnel was so tight before, like we were all almost the same person in a lot of ways, right? Like the, there was some variance, but we were all just from the way we had to b- b- come up through this, through the ecosystem, you ended up with kind of the same personality. Now, just the way the funnel works, there's definitely a broader range, a b- broader spectrum of, of people, broader, broader spectrum of personality. So they need to find out what makes them tick, right? They need to. Like, of course, the coach wants to try and find that out. Hopefully, if you're in the right environment, that will happen. And, and you know, to your point earlier at the start of the show, right, teams that are successful in that will allow these strengths to shine, right, and will will help the player understand their weaknesses. But first and foremost, if you want to be a pro athlete, you got to be a real professional on yourself, right? So you got to be a real professional on yourself. And that's one thing that I definitely help players with is the ability to self-assess and the ability to be really clear on who they are and what they are. And if you can really double down on those qualities, like that's why it is the best league in the world, but it's not necessarily the best players, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Right? Um, so those players that I would classify as not the best players, they're amazing at some things, right, that other players just can't do that teams need. Now, the problem is for those guys to really understand in the situation of these, let's say, bottom six forwards, that it's okay to be a bottom six forward and just fall in love with who you are because that's going to give you a career, right? A lot of times players want to be something that they're not. Um, so that would be like, so the communication around that is one thing for me telling them, but it's another thing for them to believe that, right? And to understand that and to own that and to grow into that. And then as far as from an ex- expectation standpoint, you mentioned, um, I'm always about pushing standards, right? And your own personal standards is what is I will challenge players on a lot too, right? Where can you grow? Where do you need to grow? Who do you need to become to be this player that you want to be? And that's all around a personal uh, expectation on standards. Now, you have a spot on the website for philosophy, and I think that's where I found the quote that really stuck out to me. And uh, correct me if I get it wrong, but the gist of it is it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than have an opportunity and not be prepared. I, I love that. It's simply stated, and I believe so true. Where does that philosophy have its origins? Jeez, I do know whose who's quote that is, too. And I well, how, well, in your life, like, how does it get on your, you know, right. how does it incorporate itself into your person? Well, yeah, it, was, it, it obviously meant, meant the world to me because I, I do think that's one of the missing aspects of confidence. You know, when you talk to players, uh, I, I, I think there's five pillars of confidence that I've kind of, you know, found experientially that I've found a, a post post hockey career and working in business and things. And and generally speaking, results is what players really focus their comp- their confidence on, right? If you're getting good results, then you're confident. Now, what happens if you've never scored a goal in the league that you want to be confident in, right? Now, like, what, if you take that out of the equation, are you allowed to be confident, right? Um, the next one is competence. Like, I mean, if we are really good and we feel really good about our skill set and we just walk on the ice or in whatever avenue of life that you're in, it's probably easier to be confident, Right. Now, if you're at a skill funnel that's super tight and everyone's really good and now that has been taken away from you and it's not an automatic that you're the best player when you step on the ice. So now what? Right. So now we've taken two things out of the equation. For instance, a guy from the minor leagues getting called up or traded. Now he wants to be a performer in the NHL level. So 
part of that sequence, though, now there's three left. One of them is process, which I call preparation, right? Like, how are you owning your process and your preparation? And there's lots of aspects to that. Now, I don't think that, you know, again, there's definitely areas now at 47 looking back that there were things I could have been doing for sure. And one of which was preparing mentally to be the player I think I could have been in the NHL level, right? Allowing myself the the grace, really, and and the and the humility, but yet the opportunity to flourish in that environment, right? So I always thought that I could be, that I was good enough, that my confidence was there, but I'd never really lived it. Right. And I never really had that opportunity to be that. So until you see it in the mirror, right, first person, it's hard to understand it. And that's where the mental side of it totally comes in. So anyways, there, there's a there's a lot to unpack there with when it comes to preparation. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a way to build confidence, to know that you're doing things that are benefiting you, that potentially other people aren't doing, you know, that you're disciplined enough to stick to a routine and to be curious enough to find new ways to to push yourself. That is totally a way to walk into an arena or any facility and just know, hey, I'm ready. I've done now, the work. You mentioned that if you had allowed yourself the grace during your playing career, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, if you could hop in a time machine and go back and talk to younger Jason, um, at any point in your career, is there anything that you think you might have been able to say? Do you think you would have even been able to convince yourself of seeing things differently at that age? I think so. I, I do. You know, I uh, I was an intellectual. I guess I still am. Uh, you know, so I I I was a I was a thinker. I thought a lot of things, and uh, and I think what I felt was important. I think could have been shifted if someone could have talked to me about what was important, right? So I definitely could have been, I should have been more curious in the dressing room. Like instead of waiting for Luke Robitaille to walk across the dressing room and sit down and talk to me as a rookie, like I, I, I should have walked across the floor and shook his hand and talked to him and started asking more questions. You know, like I was, I was kind of from that old adage of, you know, rookies don't speak in the room and just find your place and do your thing. Yet that wasn't really who I was as a person. You know, like, so I was kind of being somebody that I wasn't. And and that's what I talk with players about today. So I mean, a lot of my work is experiential. It's like, you got to be, you have to really fully embrace who you are and allow yourself to be who you are before you even step foot on the ice. Because if you're trying to be somebody that you're not in the dressing room, how are you supposed to be fully you when you're on the ice surface trying to, trying to perform? So, um, so there's a little bit of morphology there. Like a little, I was a little bit of a hybrid, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't anything that was suffocating, like, don't get me wrong, right? But there was just, there was ways that I think that I could have become more comfortable and taken ownership of my own situation instead of being in a spot where I was waiting for some support or some discussion or some inclusion or some level of belonging. As a lifelong fan of the game, who's never played it at a competitive level higher than bronze level, you know, adult league <laughs> wreck you know rec league in in southern california no less so like just to give you an idea of how <laughs> how low the competitive level i've participated in there's a bunch of questions that i've always wondered about the sport and i have asked a bunch of people and the answers always vary but i'll ask you now how much does locker room interaction bleed out into on ice play you know there's obviously sports writers 
have stories to tell. So they're going to tell you stories about this locker room all loves each other. And that locker room has a rift. And that's why Philadelphia didn't win the cup against Chicago because it was a divided locker room. And the Kings won in 2012 because everybody was best buds and hung out together. Like, but for an average, you know, for, for just any player, random player, how much does what happens to you in the locker room before you hit the ice impact what happens to you when you hit the ice? Well, I, I believe, well, first of all, it's not about being all buddies and mm-hmm. it's not about it, it. I don't think it's about that, but I do think the locker room is a massive component of team success on the ice when you get it right, you know, and, and that's, and that's, I mean, I do some culture workshops with coaches here, you know, locally and, and, and around with different associations and, and trying to put a finger on what that means, right? Culture is a buzzword. Everyone wants to say, you know, yeah, we we know what culture is or what we're trying to find, but why does nobody get it right? Or why do very few get it right, right? So to really understand what that looks like or feels like um, is an interesting is an interesting discussion. Um, one of the one of my guests on on my podcast, Brad Larson, talked about his experience, who's now the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets, about his experience in Colorado, right, as a fourth line guy, and what that locker room felt like, like what the expectations were internally, and that they battled like extremely hard with each other because they held themselves to this standard that was win or not, right, and and uh, and him as a fourth line component of that, he said like a guy like Peter Forsberg would make him feel like the most important player on the team. With his seven minutes of ice that he'd come over and say that hit or that fight or whatever that was was like huge for us, partner. Like, thanks so much for doing that. Like, that was amazing. Right. Which which made Brad feel like he was six four two forty, right? Like that he had a piece and an important piece on that team. So it's not about being buddies, but it's about being accountable. And I think it's about the communication and the standard of what's going on. And I had my first taste of that, like at the at the pro level, like at the NHL level. I mean, I was definitely on teams at the minor league level that had pieces of that, like definitely that team in Lowell that I played on. We went to the final against Chicago and we lost. There was definitely a, a, a piece of like that culture piece where we did, we did do things together, like away from the rink. We were together. We were together in the locker room. We had a ton of fun together, which I think is really important too. But there was nobody that was bigger than the group, right? Like that was, that was one of the things that I thought was really interesting there. But my experience at the pro level was ironically after I had gone to Europe, after I'd kind of made that, I made the jump across the water, uh, fell in love with the opportunity that I had in Germany, thought that I'd written off my NHL kind of hopes and dreams. And then I had this experience in Japan that kind of made me like think, you know what, I do love this thing. I'm going to come back. I'm going to give it one more go. I think I can play in the NHL still. And I had an opportunity with Detroit, with the Red Wings. So Kenny Holland, who um, who I knew here locally, he's from the Okanagan. Uh, Mike Babcock was the coach there at the time. He was my junior coach in Spokane when we went to uh, were ranked number one in the in the Canadian Hockey League. So I had a history with him and they said, yeah, come on out. You know, like I remember a conversation with Babs. He's like, yeah, I don't know why you haven't been here for the last 10 years. So let's see if you can be here now. Right. So um, so I showed up there. And anyways, on a personal level, I got hurt like second day of camp and bruised my ribs and was trying to just trying to make the Red Wings on at 70 percent at best. And that didn't work out very well. But the feeling. And that was like the Detroit glory days, right? Like I was a nobody there, like at that point in my career, like, you know, 30 year old minor leaguer, right? Essentially. And it was the most comfortable, the most included, the most I felt worthwhile, like in my entire journey, right? Through, through these different teams. Now, mind you, right. I was with uh, Toronto who was struggling. I got traded to 
the Kings, who were also struggling at the time. I would got I got picked up on waivers by the Tampa Bay Lightning, who was in an absolute mess at the time. Uh, then I signed with the New York Islanders, who hadn't been in the playoffs for five years, right? So, like to your point earlier, like thirty-two teams, they're all operating on a different frequency, right? And at the time, Detroit was humming. And like, and for instance, you know, Chris Chelios walks across the room. Like, he, I don't even know if he knew who I was, or maybe he didn't, and that's why he wanted to just, I mean, just an organic, shook my hand. Let's go to my chili bar. I want to take you for some chili. So I go with Chris. He Chelios. was just trying to sell chili. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need one more bowl of chili, yeah. right? Um, Dominic Hasek at the at the front of the bus, like sits down beside me, talks my whole year off when we're at Traverse City. You know, Thomas Holmstrom inviting me to go play golf with the guys. Like it was just. There was nobody above anybody. There was there was no separation, and and that to the same and to the same level of that, like a guy like Chris Draper would be teaching draws to Darren Helm, who was going to take uh, Chris Draper's job. Like that was the level of internal belief in team. Whereas other teams I'd been on, like the the right winger that was in front of me, wanted nothing to do with me. It would probably be even like hoping that I fail or trying to sabotage <laughs> right. things or whatever to protect himself. Right, so. Um, just a very different level of how they operated there. And it was wild to see that because for me, that was really an epiphany, right? It's like, holy smokes. Like I was in the NHL in all these different places, but this one place felt way different. And then there was actually observable actions that I could pinpoint to that of what that looked like. So uh, that's that's totally a story that I tell when I'm doing the culture thing. It's like the culture is the observable behaviors, really. So there's a feeling about it, but what what do you want it to look like? Like if I was to stand there and watch it, what does that look like, right? And um, and Detroit totally had that in spades. So um, anyways, uh, very cool to see that in my own kind of suitcase journey or around the league into different parts of the world about what what that what that looks like and what it what it, what how it works when it works and how it feels when it doesn't work. Remind me to ask you about mentorship because that was where I was going to go next. But in that telling of that story, you just mentioned it. It caused me to remember a conversation we had with Mark Yannetti about the the Kings uh, in the offseason. And he was referencing the 2014 Kings. And he said, you know, you said, you can't tell me that the 2014 Kings aren't the pinnacle of culture. Right. Seven, three game seven road wins, you know, come back from 03 in that series against the Sharks. And he's lauding the culture and everybody talks about the culture. And he said, but then it disappeared in six weeks. And he was. You know, he's exaggerating. It wasn't six weeks, but, but, but the fact that he was so frank about how quickly what was a tremendous culture disappeared made me sort of, I don't know, sad's too strong a word, but sad because people talk about culture as if it's this structure that you build, you set it on a shelf. You stand back, you admire it, and you go, yes, this is our culture. We have built it. And then you walk away from it, and you don't think about it again. But it's something, it's what you do every day, right? It's not something you build. It's something you do. Um, So when you're doing a culture workshop, you mentioned that you do it for coaches. But can players, like, can players be coached to be better culturalists, culture guys? Can you be coached to to contribute to to a good culture? Well, I believe you can. I mean, and that's really what one of the foundational principles of what my hockey is is just a is is just a ardent belief in growth mindset, right? Like I, I truly believe you can get better at anything you want, and and there's still a lot of people out there that think you can't. Like there's some areas that you can't. Like I think you can teach passion. 
I mean, I, I, I don't think you can take a player who's like two on the give meter and take him to a 10, right? Mm-hmm. But you, there's definitely gradations. Like you, you can find ways to inspire players to see things from a different perspective, to buy in a little bit differently, right? So, so that's like, that's my step one of like really what I do is that, yes, you can get better, right? So when it comes to you call them a culturist or like a teammate, like the ideas to to neglect the interpersonal relationships in the locker room or in like in the hierarchy of of the of the ecosystem of an organization is complete folly right like and that was one of the things that i got wrong for sure is that i loved like my my number one for me looking back is i wanted the guys to like me right i wanted to be accepted i wanted to be one of the boys i wanted to know that i i would do anything for them and and I think I did a good job of that. I mean, which is why I don't have any problem getting these ex teammates on my podcast, right? Like I think I was a likable guy that I would go to battle for these guys, and and you know there's some respect there, so they'll they'll show up if I if I have a phone call. But I had a chip in my shoulder when it came to coaches for some reason, and when it came to management, and not that I I don't know I was just a little aloof, you know, like I was like I I'm 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 part of this group. And that was also the way the culture worked back then. There was like there was definitely a divide between the players and there was the, and the coaches and the management, right? So like we were one group and everyone else was another group, and it was like we were fighting for each other against them, kind of. And I sort of took that on a little more personally. So you know, for instance, there was even a point in my career where like I wouldn't work out in the team locker room, which how stupid does this sound? But I would go to a private gym to do my workouts. Right. Because I hated the guys that were doing push ups in front of the coach's door. Huh. Right. Like that absolutely drove me crazy. Right. Like this, I thought it was like this, this pretend, like I give a sh- kind of scenario. Right. And I'm like, I give, I give sh- so much that I'm leading the league in goals. Yet I'm going to, but I'm going to do this kind of on my own terms. Right. Like I'm going to show you that I can be this type of player. So, I mean, completely immature view of, of how I should have done that. Right. Because the guys that make the choices are the guys that are in those are in those chairs right and they want to see it right they want to see it so again allowing for me to allow myself to be me and to let let go of that baggage of what maybe that might look like you know and just to really step into an embrace it would have helped me right so i mean just a little personal story there like with myself but yes you can definitely have discussions about being a teammate about what you want your locker room to look like and again you can have an extension of that not only to like this is good for the team and the now and to win games, but this is also how it helps you individually in the eyes of others, right? In the eyes of your coach, in the eyes of management, right? This is going to give you longevity. This is going to make you wanted, right? So you can, and depending on the player, right? Some players are very independent and, and I mean, selfishly motivated and that's okay, right? Like that's okay as long as you can push their buttons properly. Some people want to be well liked by everybody and this will help them, right? So you, you need to be able to spin that in a way that's going to help that individual, but Yes, I mean long long answer to yes, you can you can help these these guys players uh, come together in a room. Have you ever yourself personally um, sought out therapy or mental health? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, or or mental health assistance? I've had coaches before. Mm. I mean, I haven't been with a psychologist per se. Well, no, I have. I've I've worked with, I mean, in Toronto, there was one in Florida. I've, I've spoken with them before, but not on a full-time, like, regular basis. Um, what I do really, I mean, I classify myself as a coach. I mean, I said mental performance coach. Uh, coaching and mentorship, I mean, I, I think those are, there's a slash between those two. It depends on who it is you're working with. I think they're, they're 
so important and, ab- and absolutely vital to high performance. And uh, so I've definitely worked with them on an executive business level. Um, a lot of the best coaches that I've had uh, can help in that in the in the facility of whatever they're talking about. So for me, like business or you know marketing direction. But there's also a personal connection about like what is stopping me or what are the things that are holding me back. So you tie those two together, and that's where the that's where the magic happens. And and I think that the players in the league right now, and even teams uh, in the league right now, are starting to really believe and understand the value and uh, a lot of players are seeking out people like me or similar you know to have in their stable in their toolbox to help them see things that they can't and to push them even more and there's also teams that are doing the same thing like they're bringing in people um, to have access to their players when their players want it because they understand that they're their coaching staff can't quite do it that way, right? They have 20, they have the collective, they can't be ISO specific granular with each, with each player and, uh, and having somebody that's sort of in that, in that neutral, the Switzerland area, right? Where I'm not really on the coaching staff per se, right? And, and I'm more like player centric, helping them out. It's, um, there's some trust there that gets, that gets, uh, added in. So definitely a new age thing, especially when it comes to hockey players and the NHL and pro hockey, but not a new age thing when it comes to other, uh, other types of professional sports and disciplines. Yeah, and I apologize. That question, as I asked it, I wasn't realizing how maybe accusatorial it might have come across. Um, The reason I asked it, though, is that um, I didn't realize how much impact it would have. I casually mentioned something about my therapist, I don't know, a couple months ago. And I got a couple notes from people who were like, hey, good for you to admit it and whatever. And I, I don't know. I just happen to come from a family where it's not a big deal. And so I was like, yeah, I go to a therapist and it's whatever. I do therapy. Um, and I, I don't know that it would necessarily apply to professional athletes because I think professional athletes have a fundamentally different <laughs> approach to life than you know those of us who who aren't um but i believe that there's a couple things that everybody excluding maybe professional athletes and i don't know maybe like military or you know doc, emergency room doctors or something but in your average day-to-day life i believe everybody should work retail um do therapy do improv and I, oh and food service just for context and experience um and I think self-awareness is like a huge gain from having from having to do those things. But it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on your own self-awareness. And it sounds like it's a pretty big part of all of the things that you work on. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's maybe the most essential, right? Like the the lens that you view yourself with, with really matters. And, and, you know, I mean, to maybe I'll unpack a little bit more of what you said there, because what you said and, and the response that you got, imagine that at the professional level, especially when I was, when I was playing, right? Like to talk to a sports psychologist, the stigma around that was there had to be something innately wrong with you. Right. Right. Like that, like that was what that, you would have to put your hand up and essentially admit that. And I mean, one, you didn't feel that way at all because you had been conditioned to be gladiatorial in everything, right? That there is nothing wrong with me. And the first sign of weakness in anywhere, whether it be a locker room or on the ice, was like considered death. And it'd be the last thing you'd want your management to know or your coach, right? So, and unfortunately speaking, that would be the only time players would actually seek somebody out, right? So, 
I never personally like reached that depth of like whatever that would be sorrow, despair, tragedy that I'd feel like, Hey, I need to go see somebody. Right. Like I was always in that scenario of like, I got it covered. Right. Like I was, you know, pretty, you know, pretty accountable to myself. I thought I had things on the go. I, you know, I, I was reading, I was well read. You know I mean? I thought, Hey, I, I, I have it. Right. But what I, how I've unpacked that and changed that narrative now is like, it shouldn't be about being broken and then trying to fix something. It should be, how do you be your best, period? Like, things could be smooth and rolling, but there's still something else there. So, like, get curious about your performance levels, right? And and that's the way I talk about this. How, how can you be your best? So, sure, there's going to be times where you're going to feel like you need, in air quotes, support. But there's going to be times where you don't feel like you need it, but you should still be pushing. You should still be curious. You should still be diving in. So, yeah, for me, like, that's one thing. It's like high performance, right? So that's why it's mental performance. It's not about therapy. Like, I don't consider what I do therapy at all. And there's nothing wrong with therapy. There's nothing wrong with people who 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 want to have that or to seek that out. But for me, it's not about putting, you know, it's not about fixing. It's about how do we, how do we inspire? How do we elevate? How do we, how do we be great, right? Like, where's your greatness? And I think that message, narrative to a pro athlete, for one, right? And to an up and coming junior player, that resonates more, right? That's easier to step into. We talked earlier about the importance of communication. And it's funny because to me, the benefit of, of therapy at this point in my life isn't fixing. Like I don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, like, well, when I was five, you know, the yeah. whatever it's, it's maintenance. It's like brushing my teeth now at this point. And I don't go every week. It's, you know, make sure I go once in a while to sort of make sure I've got the, the, the reminders in place. And like, yeah, I don't, you know, whatever. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I haven't been through your system and I don't want to tell you what it is you do, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the stuff you do isn't very similar to, um, that sort of maintenance approach. Yeah. It sounds towards, like coaching, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind like of, really, and, I mean, you could take their therapy out of that and put coaching. I go for coaching every two weeks. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. That's totally what it probably is. The, there was a, when I was in, high school and elementary school, whatever, junior high, they, they would ha do this thing where you'd write an essay for your class and then you'd break off into small groups and everybody had to read theirs out loud. And the point of it was just so that you could hear your own words out loud in your own head. Like to me, that's all, that's what I get out of therapy. Anyway, right. this, is not, this is not about me. This is about you. Um, so got a goofy, real quick, goofy question before I want to double back to what I was asking about mentorship. When I first heard the phrase up my hockey, I heard it as in like up yours, like up my hockey. But then, but then over time, I went, oh no, I'm being, a it's a call to action. I'm being asked to like up my game, up my hockey. I'm assuming it's the second one and not the first one. Well, it's both. Okay. <laughs> All right. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, definitely more the second one. Like it, it's, mm -hmm. it's more, it's more literal than it is mm -hmm. figurative, but I, I like the cheekiness of it. Yeah. You know, I did like the cheekiness of it. I thought that was a little bit of an eye catcher or an eye grabber. Um, and then for those that were interested that you'd find out, you mean, really holistically well, what it is and what it's about. And it's about, you know, it's about your personal greatness. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you caught both of them. Some people don't. Some people <laughs> yeah. do. Right. But, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely both connotations there. Probably says more about me that the first one I thought was. <laughs> was you know what? I mean, I, I don't I, I don't want to hijack your 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 interview, but I, Please I do. want I wanted to double back to something. You, you talked about the dressing room earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how important it is or isn't. And I just. When you said that, I, I thought of a recent interview I had with Scott Borak, who is the head coach of the Merrimack team uh, there in Massachusetts, the number five team in the nation right now from a D1 university scenario. Uh, never have been that high ever in their history, right? He, he's been head coach there for four or five years. 
And uh, and he says his philosophy and his like what he finds important has definitely changed over his career. And we got to Merrimack, he understood that they had had to apologize for stop being for for being Merrimack first of all, right? Like smallest campus, smallest arena, all these things, right? And they had to change the belief system. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, of course, he wants to focus on the hockey player, but he started putting much more emphasis on the person, mm-hmm. right? So he was he would start to evaluate players on whether I could sit with them at the what i want them at my thanksgiving dinner right is what i want them amongst my family like would i consider them somebody that i would go to for support or now i'm paraphrasing right but like essentially he wanted to worry about the locker room first and who was in that locker room and he felt that locker room would take care of the on ice performance and uh and in doing so, like he recruited uh, all the different captains and assistant captains from around the D1 scenario that were on the edges of the thing. And he got rid of all these other players. And that's that's how he built what is now the number five ranked team. So it's not the shiniest penny, right? It's not the, you know, it's not the highest octane goal scorer, but it's the person who wants to do the things, the observable actions that I talked about that result in a culture that is a winning culture, that is a family culture, that is a, that is a team, right? A true team. So... Interesting, right? So him on his level, who does the recruiting for his own program, that's one of the things at the college level, like they they do their own recruiting. There's not scouts out there doing whatever. They've now found this foundation of what the person looks like that is a Mary Mac warrior, right? And I think that they're like, that's, that's the new age. Like, that's the vision. And yeah, you can have, and I, I'm not going to use him because he's not a character guy, but I mean, if a Connor McDavid comes across and maybe he's not the nicest guy in the world and he's kind of a little bit of a dick, like you, there's room for him, of course. Because everyone else is still going to pull him in, right? But you can't have like five or six of those guys because that's never going to work. So um, anyways, I thought that that might be interesting for your listeners and even interesting for you, right? That there is some, that there's much more emphasis on that personal development than just the hockey player now. One of the things that drives me nuts as a fan and as, you know, someone who's outside the game, right? I, you know, I happen to work for the Kings and I have this great opportunity, but I'm totally removed from the actual game. But I'm that I'm whatever. I'm a person who if you tell me a story with a moral, I just internalize the moral and believe like, oh yeah, sure, of course. That's everybody gets the moral of that story. Then that's everybody thinks that way. So I'm watching Miracle, right, which is this incredible movie about this incredible moment in time and there's this scene where they even have, you know, the music swell, you know, it's like this thing. And, and, uh, I'm going to blank on the characters' names, but the assistant coach says, uh, you know, they're, they're in the camp putting together the team and it's, they haven't even done like a full day of practice. And the coach has the team already on his piece of paper. And the assistant coach says, What's that? He says, It's my team. And he says, Already? And he goes, Yeah. And he goes, You've left some of the best players off. And he says, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. And yet, Every year, every day, every month, I see people ignoring that moral, ignoring that very clear message. So, I mean, I, I love that story about with Miramac, you said? Yeah, Miramac. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I love that because I'm just constantly confused at how, <laughs> how people seem to miss the thread. I do want to, though, go back to the, the pin I put in about mentorship because... I'm a cynical person. I'm I don't necessarily believe stuff. Although I just said I believe morals in a story when I hear them. But <laughs> but when people tell me stuff, I don't necessarily believe it. And one of the things that always raises my eyebrow and makes me think, well, that's not true. People talk about mentorship as if putting a young player in a locker room with an old player will somehow automatically mean that the young player learns from the old player. So in our case, for example, we have, you know, Quentin Byfield's drafted. 
and everybody says, oh, my God, he'll learn at the feet of Andrzej Kopitar. And before you know it, we'll have a replacement for Andrzej Kopitar. And we draft Brant Clark and people say, oh, my God, he shoots right. And he was drafted in the top 10. And so is Drew Doughty. And he'll play at the feet of Drew Doughty. And before you know it, we'll have another Drew Doughty. But like, I don't buy that. I mean, in your experience, how rare is it for a veteran player at the peak of his at the peak of the sport to actually willingly take a younger player aside? And and because, I mean, it, it must be a huge investment of time and personal energy to actually be a mentor. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. I mean, so, no, it doesn't automatically happen. But when it does happen, that's one of those observable behaviors that I'm that I was talking about. Right. Like. I mean, Sidney Crosby lived with Mario Lemieux, right? Mm-hmm. Invited him in. Like, there's so many stories like that when it when it works. Um, Boston uh, has had their had their big three there. Like, you and you can't tell. You can't tell as a Dano Char or Patrice Bergeron that this is what they're supposed to do because they might right. not want to, right? They might not be good at it. They might not have the bandwidth. But if your if your best players are your best mentors, like, holy smokes. Like that is a game changer, right? If you have Quentin Byfield, who is really a sponge around Anze Kopitar, who is willingly talking to him about things that matter, right? Wanting to get to know him, showing him intricacies of the game that are going to make a difference for him, that he doesn't have to figure out on his own. Of course it matters, right? But it's not something you can just tell someone to do, right? So that that is the thing. And that's getting back to our point just a little bit earlier. You can have an Anze Kopitar on one team who is the mentor and an Anze Kopitar with the skill package the same who's not a mentor, right? Like, I obviously, you want the one that cares about other people, right? The care, that wants to invest back into uh, the program that he's been involved in, right? But that's not an inherent people quality, right? So, you I mean, you want to try and find the guys that do want to do that. So, your time in L.A. was brief, but what were the the highlights of it what were the positives that you remember the highlights of la geez i'm gonna sound cynical like i, I really wasn't <laughs> oh, no. there too long but but <laughs> yeah. i mean i did love the area you know what mm-hmm. i mean I, I loved i have a great story from there which is so funny because it's kind of non-hockey related but uh this would probably be a funny one for for your for your listeners we back in the old la forum which was where we were when i first got traded there uh we shared a gym with the la lakers so and very rarely were was the team there when the Lakers were there for obvious reasons, right? And only one player, only one team can play at a time. So often they were on the road or we were, but we happened to be both be there uh, for a practice day. And and I was, you know, a young guy there and last one to leave the rink. I'd kind of gotten over the thing I told you about earlier, right? I'm like, I'm 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 in the gym and I knew I needed to be there. And <laughs> yeah. and anyways, and, and a bunch of the Lakers were in there. Like Rodman was in, or James Worthy, I think, was in there. I'm not sure if Rodman was there then or not. I don't want to. But what the one thing was, so like that was really weird in the first place, right? So me. Uh, you know, Canadian white guy in the gym with with all these huge basketball players, right? That that I'd seen on TV and was kind of a little bit starstruck. Uh, was interesting. And then I came around the corner to have my shower, and in the shower there was two people: Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. So I walk into the shower with Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, and like, I, like after that, it was sort of all of a blur. Like, where am I supposed to look? Like, I didn't. I don't think I said anything. <laughs> like. Anyways, it was super strange and, and surreal, but like that is a really fun like story that I that I have in that whole game, like two truths and and one dare or whatever lie. Uh saying that you showered with Kobe and uh and Shaquille isn't one that people believe very often. But anyways, like that was a fun one. Um I'm just yeah, confused was... that the Kings and the Lakers had to share showers. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. Yeah. So, yeah. So even that was, I mean, it was, it was weird that the one, the, you know, what is actually really interesting. I think it's relevant to like where the game is now and what wouldn't happen then. And this isn't a poor me scenario, but it was just the, I said about the business aspect. Right. So when I, when I got traded there and was having this, you know, really career type year. And you can imagine now, right? Actually, if you could fast forward now and you had a 22-year-old prospect that was leading the AHL in goals and you weren't a playoff team, right? Like, would you have him up in your line? Like, would you be like, really? And you just traded like one of your, your third line center for him and Yannick Perot, right? Like, there would be some type of like one people like you would be like calling for like heads if the guy yeah. wasn't up. Right? right. You know what I mean? Like, where is this guy? Right. So they, they kept me in long beach for eight games. I didn't even really know why at the time. And I wasn't really upset about it. It was just like, okay, I'm just going to be here. But the whole thing was, is I had a 40 game deletion clause to put my contract to a one way as an entry level. So now, hold they, on, I'm going to ask you to clarify that. Cause that's a phrase I've not heard before. Okay, so I had a games played deletion clause. So at my entry-level deal, if I played 40 games in my first three years of pro hockey at the NHL level, my contract Mm -hmm. would shift from a two-way contract to a one-way contract. Okay. So meaning if they sent me down, they'd have to pay me NHL money. Yeah, yeah. So they left me in the minors till there was six games left in the season, which would put me at 39 games played in my my entry-level contract, right? So I didn't hit the 40 game mark. So that was their entire motive was to not have me reach that threshold. Right. So again, that was unbeknownst to me, right? I'm just playing hockey and I'm trying to do the best that I can. Um, After that season was done, my contract had expired. Right. So now I had to renegotiate a a new contract. Uh, They did tell me after the season, I had a good exit meeting. Like they said, Hey, we, we think there's a spot for you on our fourth, third line, potentially, you know, uh, as a, as a right winger. Uh, but we want you to be heavier than you normally are. Like I was like a 200 pounder, 6'2". Uh, they said they wanted me to be around 210, 215. And they wanted me to come to camp and be prepared to play that role. Right. So that was like more than I had ever had before. Right. So I was like, so I went home. I'm working my tail off. I'm drinking, you know, whole milk, which I now find know that I'm allergic to with whey protein, <laughs> yep. you know, and I'm doing all the things. And I come to camp at like 6% body fat and 215 pounds. And I'm, and I think I'm ready to go, except they don't want to give me a new contract. Or at least the contract they want to give me is the qualifying offer that was allowed at the time. So my original contract had a built in minor league floor. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's say like I was 50 K like was, was my salary, but there was a bonus involved in that, that I couldn't make less than 150,000. So if they never called me up that I would make a minimum of 150 K right. What they, the only thing that they had to do to qualify my contract in that, in that uh, off season was to give me a 10% raise on my base salary for, fo- for both the AHL and the NHL. Okay. Which they did. So, like, let's say at the time, I think the league minimum was three seventy five or something. So I was making three seventy five in the NHL. So they qualified at fifteen a ten percent raise, which put it close to four hundred, right? And then they gave me a ten percent raise on my minor league base salary of fifty grand to say that if I played in the minors for them, I'd make fifty five thousand dollars that year. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even arguing the NHL side, but I'm like, I was just the best player in the AHL. And you you want me to take a fifty percent pay cut and you traded your right your your, your third line center for me? And that's what you want me to sign? Like, so like, just for me, like there was zero good faith there, right? Like there was zero like carrot, like in the big scheme of things for the Kings, like could they not have 
said, hey, man, like, we don't think you're going to be in the minors, but boy, you've really proven yourself there. You're going to help us down there. Like, we'll, you know, we'll give you the 150 or whatever that you were making last year at 21, right? So, like, that was just the ecosystem and the environment, right? So, I tried to come to camp. I Well, I didn't try to. I came to camp without a contract, which, like, nobody would do now, right? But I was like, I'm going to be the good guy, right? Like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to show these guys that I want to play. I'm going to show these guys that I'm ready, that this is my year to help them without a contract, without insurance, without all this stuff. Um, just so they can see me and hopefully I can get a raise in the minors, right? Like where I've, where I've, where I've been really, really successful before. And anyways, never happened. Like I ended up, like I needed to play an exhibition game to try and make the team. I couldn't play an exhibition game without a contract. So there was internal pressure from that. So I ended up signing something they didn't really want to sign. Um, and yeah, I mean, the rest is history. They end up keeping Brad Chartrand, who the year before, who's still a buddy of mine. But I mean, if you look at Brad Chartrand's stats and his height and his weight, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it didn't really make sense in a lot of people's hockey eyes. Uh, but he played for um, Andy Murray, right, at the national team level. And Andy Murray knew him on a personal level, right, which, again, getting back to it, right, like sometimes these things matter. So, anyways, there's a long story about, you know, like about that aspect of like, you know, even trying to make the team and what I was going through from a from an off-ice scenario, right, which a lot of people forget um, can affect the on-ice or affect a lot of things, right? But I mean, I don't think that would happen now. I mean, I don't think that would happen on a, like that wouldn't have happened in a Detroit in 1999. I don't think, you know what I mean? But it happened, it happened in the Kings at that time. And that was probably one of the reasons, like a little micro detail of why maybe they were struggling, you know? Well, I was just going to say to our earlier conversations about there being, it's, it wasn't 32 teams at the time. I think it was 28 or 29 teams at the time, but yeah, there's 32 teams. They're all in flux. I think the Kings had been purchased out of bankruptcy in 96. Um, so, I mean, they were probably, AEG was probably in the infancy of its hockey management phase and yeah, it, it was, you know, it was in bankruptcy for a reason. So who knows? You know what, what? Uh... <laughs> that was, now you mentioned Mr. Anschutz, uh, I'm showing his name up of Anschutz. Is that, mm-hmm. is that yep. yeah. So Mr. Anschutz, they had us out to, uh, his, I don't know if they're still doing that, but there was a, there was a team weekend and I can't remember when it was, whether it was at the end of the one season, the beginning of another, where we all got together on his ranch and you could go like fishing and hiking. And we had these big dinners and stuff. And that was actually a really cool experience to be a part of. That would probably be one of my most memorable times of, of being there. And also the first round playoffs, actually, like the year they sent me down to the minors, they called me up for the, uh, for the playoff. I mean, it wasn't much of a run they, they got knocked out in the, in the first round, but that was that was really cool to to be there. That was my second time in the playoffs. I was I went to the Stanley Cup final with the Florida Panthers as a, as a black ace, the, my, my first year pro, or not even really my first year pro. My like my first entry into the NHL after junior was that, and then that was my second experience with the playoffs. So that was really cool that they called me up. But it, well, you know what? Here's an interesting story from that too, just to show you like how how my time with the Kings was. They um I was so uh. The, who was the coach there? Oh, Bruce Boudreau was the coach in Lowell. So that was when they sh- they shared affiliation, at least for part of the year, with the Islanders. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bruce Boudreau was uh, kind of – that was his first year actually in the AHL. He had been in the ECHL before that, won a championship, came up. And we all know, I mean, Bruce's trajectory since then. Uh, but that, that was his first year coaching at the A. I was his leading sc- scorer, right? I had the most goals on the team. I was his leading point guy. Uh, Ali didn't call me up. I don't think really at all that year, maybe one or two games. Uh, and then they called me up for this playoff run to be a black ace. I missed my first round series with Lowell, like, which they won. I got sent back for the second round and I, and I couldn't get on the ice. If you can believe that, like Bruce had me as a fourth line scenario sitting there 
trying to get on the ice, not any communication about why. And I was his leading goal scorer and leading point guy. Like, does that even like? Could you even think that would happen at the pro level? Like, it's so oh, wow. crazy and wild. But that's just kind of the way it was then. And uh, I don't know. That was the way. That's that was the cards I was dealt in that scenario, and so be it. Now, selfishly, I was also a uh, Long Beach Ice Dogs season ticket holder. Um, so <laughs> I know you weren't there very long, but I got to ask what your impression of Long Beach was. Um, well, you know what? There's a really funny story. This, this is uh, m- my first experience in Long Beach. So to, to tell you how maybe I got off on the wrong foot with L.A. right from the get-go <laughs> was I got traded from St. John's, Newfoundland, right? So first of all, I mean, pull out a map. And see if yeah. you can travel any farther in North America, right? From Long Beach to St. John's or vice versa, St. John's to Long Beach. So that like to get there was crazy, right? And I was told at the time that I was not playing until like, let's say Friday and it was like Wednesday. Okay. So all, I've been in Long Beach. I mean, I've been in St. John's for two and a half seasons. So the boys knew I got traded. And of course, every day is a party day in St. John's, Newfoundland. <laughs> and they took me out, right? I mean, rightfully so. I mean, it's kind of the, the way it goes. I knew I was getting on a plane at like 6 a.m. and I was going to land around, you know, four or whatever in the afternoon and uh, essentially didn't go to sleep that night. Right. Like had my stuff, get on the plane. Don't think I play for two days or three days and get off the plane in Long Beach. Essentially had pretzels and crackers, you know, and and apple juice, you know, trying to get some sleep in the plane. And I walk into the locker room and all the jerseys are up and there's a jersey of mine up. Right. And the coach is there, but Boxy's there, Van Boxmere. He's like, you ready to go? <laughs> I was like, in my head, I'm like, no, you know I mean, not even close. Right. Like, I've just been on the plane for like 12 hours. Right. Like, I didn't sleep last night. Like, oh, my God. So anyway, so I'm like, all right, well, giddy up. I'm playing tonight. You know, so back to the uh, back to the hotel, try and get a good meal, try and get a, a sleep in. And this is where the funny part of the story comes. So I come back to the rink. And I came in a different door than I did the first time. And I mean, and my my retention obviously wasn't great. And I didn't know anyone in the league also, right? I'd never played in the IHL. I didn't know anyone there. I'd never been a part of the Kings organization. So I'm walking by this dressing room and guys are on the bike and stuff. And so I'm introducing myself. Hi, Jason Padon. Jason Padon. I'm like 15 feet inside their dressing room. I already introduced myself to like seven people. And this one guy goes, hey, kid, I think you're in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> So I have to like sheepishly leave like the opponent's dressing room and like and go into the other one. So that was pretty funny. And then, of course, you mean Dave Taylor and like all the brass are there that night. They have me on defense on the power play and like doing all these things. I I was okay that night. Like I was actually probably above okay, like way better than I should have been. But still, I mean, for your for your for your introduction to a new team, I would have preferred not to have traveled all day long and been hung over while I was doing it. So <laughs> anyways, <laughs> you know, I had a cousin get married in Nova Scotia and, uh, that's not as far as uh, Newfoundland, but that was a, that was a brutal day of travel. I can't even imagine. Listen, Jason, I could talk to you. I feel like for another hour, but I know you've got stuff to do today. I've got stuff to do. Let's have you back on later this year and let's pick up, uh, some of these conversations again. Hey, I'm all for it. It's uh, I love talking about this stuff. It's uh, it's what I do, right? And I think it's, it really gives the, I don't know, the human nature of what's happening. Really, you I mean, and, and the really honesty of, of of what's happening with, with it. And uh, and I'm just I'm just super pumped to be working with guys and helping them to get what they what they want, right? And uh, and that's really rewarding for me. So thanks for having me on and being able to talk about it. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And if you want to hear more from Jason, the Up My Hockey podcast is available at either upmyhockey.com or wherever fine podcasts are curated. 
Jason Padolan, thank you again. Thanks so much, Jesse.